Well, today I'd like to begin by talking about cancel culture, where it comes from, and how it relates to forgiveness. Now, um, maybe you're new to the idea of cancel culture, uh, so let me define it for you. Uh, Cancel culture is the phenomenon where individuals or groups are shunned or canceled for expressing views or engaging behavior that's deemed unacceptable or controversial or offensive. So some examples of that are public figures or celebrities who are boycotted or shunned or canceled for making controversial statements or doing controversial things. Can everyone think of an example? Not, not, don't say it out loud because I don't want to do that. Uh, but can everyone think of someone that you know in the public realm that's been shunned or canceled, right? Um, cancel culture can also be social media uh, campaigns that are aimed at getting a person or an organization uh, canceled for expressing or engaging in behavior that is deemed offensive or unacceptable. Or it even goes into the university world where you see professors. Uh, We have Dr. Kate with us. I'm sure they uh, try to teach Dr. Kate how to say and not say things that are gonna get her in trouble, but uh, certain professors or speakers can become disinvited or they can lose their job for expressing certain views that are offensive or controversial by some. Now, I think what I'm sharing with you about cancel culture isn't new to you. you f- you're familiar that all around us, that this is raging, this is going on. And it relates to forgiveness, and it relates to how we live our lives as Christians. But I want to ask the question, where does cancel culture come from? How did it start? Well, nobody knows for sure, but we do have what most sociologists and some pastors believe as being the reason behind the rise of cancel culture. And it really does find its roots in some of the country's founding. Now, um, and it comes from this whole idea of something called individualism. Maybe you've heard of this sociological concept, individualism. In case you haven't, let me define it for you. Individualism is a deeply American idea. At the founding of the country, Thomas Jefferson, all around uh, um, person that I'm not gonna uh, say whatever about, but like he was one of our presidents, and he spent some time writing the Declaration of Independence. Ever hear of that document? He wrote that. And one of the things that he wrote, maybe you know the words, and it's at the front end, it really does speak to where we find a lot of our understanding of individualism. Do you remember the words? We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. And they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. Among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And if you were to ask the average American, what makes you happy? How do you find meaning in life? What does a meaningful life look like? Nearly all the time, you'll get a variety of answers, but one of the major themes is that people will say, you need to search inside yourself to find the answer. Every positive post on Insta from your mom's best friend says, search inside yourself, the answer is within. And every wannabe West LA fitness instructor slash soon-to-be micro-influencer will say, that you already know the truth because it lives in here. And you just need to do it. Just do it. 
okay? And nearly everyone you talk to will say something along the lines of this. It is the responsibility of the individual to determine what makes for a meaningful life. It's up to you, baby, and it's, that is the message of individualism. Now, uh, it is that principle of being self-reliant and independent. So there's, now, there's something new on the front of individualism, something new, a new sociological phenomenon, and it's the idea of expressive individualism. And this is a term that was coined by Berkeley University professor and sociologist Robert Bela. I love that name, Robert Bela. And expressive individualism is different than how people have operated for thousands and thousands of years. Now, in the ancient times, uh, now, if you ask my daughter what ancient times were, she'll say like 2001. But in the real ancient times, in antiquity, in the ancient times, people, what they did is they looked outside of themselves to the world around them to gather their sense of identity, to figure out who they were. They looked to their community and they looked to their family to determine who they were, and that's how they defined themselves. And they would say, I know who I am based on who you tell me I am. And back in ancient times, your vocation, your job, wasn't picked by you. You generally took on whatever your parents did. So if your parents did a particular kind of job, that is the job that you would do. And when you grew up, you usually died where you were born. You didn't move across the country and relocate for work and get a reload package. What you did is you died where you lived and you lived where you died. And you worked and you did what your parents did. And some of you are saying right now, that sounds awful. Do you know where my parents live? And do you know what my parents did? That would be the worst. Well, that's how it was. And back in ancient times, you just did what they did. And, you're, and, you, and, and that, that's how it was. So what is expressive individualism? It's different. It's different because we don't approach life that way anymore. We approach life in a different kind of way. Expressive individualism, uh, let me put it this way. Every time we communicate, and we're saying things like, it just feels natural to me. Or, I've got to be true to myself. Or, I'm not going to live a lie. I'm going to live my truth. Expressive individualism is uh, what you hear uh, at every single commencement of speech. They say, you just got to go out there and figure out your passion and chart your own course. March to the beat, march to the beat of your own drummer. You need to find yourself, get in touch with the real you. Figure out how to express it, and then you're going to discover a meaningful life. I decide what's right for me. And so, and so expressive individualism, the modern cultural understanding of how we figure out who ourselves, it's not wrong in and of itself. If you look at the scriptures, you look, and you look at what um, kind of the understanding of individualism has done for the world, it's really emphasized the individual and like different kinds of people have been elevated who are usually put down. And in the scriptures, we say that each person is uniquely gifted and made. God has made you unique. There's nobody like you in the world. You are, a, you are a unique person, and that is a good thing. And God celebrates that, and this church celebrates that. But when expressive individualism is connected to some other things, it, creates, it can create 
parts of what we call cancel culture. Here's where it intersects with cancel culture. Why? Cancel culture actually intersects with modern therapy. Um, in many circles of modern therapy, the starting point of a therapist is oppression. All right, let me explain what I mean by this. In some of these circles, they see on one level or another all individuals as being oppressed and controlled by society's expectations or roles or structures uh, that prevent people from expressing their true identity. Okay? And so therefore, some therapists, not all therapists, in fact, we even have therapists in the audience, and we're not talking about them. We have, actually, Ingrid is a therapist, and she's just, re, she's just launched her new therapy company. So give her a round of applause. It's so exciting. We are so proud of you. We are rooting for you. This is really exciting, and we hope you get thousands of clients and charge them millions of dollars in a get-rich-quick scheme helping people with therapy, but, you know, uh, and not using cancel culture as part of it. But, like... What I'm saying is, is like, you know, this is not about Ingrid, and I know she's here, uh, but there's other therapists, not Ingrid, and not, and not every therapist, but there's some therapists uh, that see their role as helping clients to learn how to cope and self-actualize in the midst of their oppression. Okay, are we clear on what, what I'm saying here? Okay, so if you put it together with me, do the math, do the math. If your mental starting place is that you are the one who decides within yourself what's true for you, and if the modern therapeutic model validates your individuality and any challenge to that identity is a form of oppression, and you go about living your life and somebody doesn't agree with you or challenges the way you live your life, if somebody doesn't overtly and enthusiastically support your life decisions, or if an organization or a business does not affirm you to the degree to which you believe and deserve that you should be affirmed, will the natural result of expressive individualism combined with a therapeutic culture is for you to defend yourself. Why wouldn't you defend yourself? That's wrong. You challenge the person. You stand up for who you are. And for many, for many people, this becomes a justice issue. And, 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 and they earnestly, and I do really mean this, and they earnestly, they believe that they need to defend people because they believe people are being oppressed from expressing their two, true individuality, their true personhood inside of themselves. And it's just the right thing to do. And they think to, they so, think to themselves, how could I just stand by? How could I just ignore all these things? I need to stand up. I need to speak out and be a protector. I need to gatekeep. There's people who are being hurt. And if you don't want to help me, well, then maybe you're not an ally in this. And this is where I believe the rage stems from. This is the fight behind the fight. Why? And this is why I believe we're seeing this constant good versus evil conflict play out on the public stage. Because if you do something that might offend somebody's identity, well, outrage is appropriate. And forgiveness, well, that's just out of the question. How could you forgive someone at a time like this? How could, I even, how could you even bring up forgiveness to me when my identity is being attacked? Or how could you tell me to forgive when our expression of ourselves is under attack? So what are Christians to do? Say you're here, 
and you call yourself a Christian, how should we react? Well, Jesus, on his time here on earth, he spoke directly about identity, how it relates to forgiveness, and how his followers are supposed to act while they're being oppressed. And he gives this really big sermon that you can find. The, the, uh, one of his disciples, his name was Matthew, who used to be a tax collector. And Jesus kind of brought him out of tax collecting and said, hey, you're going to write stuff down for me uh, and follow me. He did some other things too. Matthew wrote down this amazing sermon. And it's called the Sermon on the Mount. There's thousands of people there. And Jesus gets up and he speaks it. And when he speaks it, we see that he's offering this new way of being. This new identity, it just feels so different when it's compared against cancel culture. He offers a new way that should form our identity and how we see ourselves. Read with me in Matthew 5. It says this. It says, this is Jesus speaking. He says, you have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you, and do not turn away from the one who wants, you to, wants to borrow from you. You've heard it that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. The words of Jesus, don't they just feel so different than the words of an angry mob? In one part of this, Jesus uses this illustration. He goes, if someone asks you to walk one mile, you should walk a second mile. Now, if you don't know what this is, this is a specific reference regarding Roman occupiers. So Roman soldiers were like, this is our country now. We're bringing peace to Jerusalem. And they took over and killed all the army and said, now it's peaceful. And after they did that, um, the rules were that if a Roman soldier came up to you, and said, I want you to carry all my gear. Like, you know, maybe he has like a spear or a shield. Or maybe a, a backpack full of a change of clothes. Or whatever he had. The law required you to actually carry that stuff for him. For at least the equivalent of one mile. They didn't have the mileage system back then. But you know, whatever that equivalent was. And you had to walk with him for at least one mile, without protest. And Jesus says, not only should you suffer the injustice of walking one mile, but that you should go above and beyond and walk two miles with him. It's really different. 
He says, listen, 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 listen. Listen, if, if you want to be one of my followers, this is what you're going to look like. Here's what you're going to look like. Don't retaliate. Don't hate your enemy. In fact, don't even be neutral towards your enemy. Love your enemy and pray for the health and the well-being and the prosperity of your enemies. Let me ask you a personal question. How often do you pray for your enemies? How often do you pray specifically? Well, I pray for my enemies. I'm like, destroy them. And then, uh, and then I pray Old Testament prayers, like I told you last week. Lord, get them out of my way. And then, like, the Lord's like, mm, why don't you pray, try praying for the health and well-being and the prosperity of your enemies? I want to ask you, how often do you pray for those who have wronged you, their success, their health? How do you pray? How often do you pray for the well-being of their enemies, whether they're people you know, like people that have done a good job of trying to hurt you, or like your public enemy number one. How often do you pray for them? Do you pray for them at all? And when you do pray for them, what is the tone of that prayer? The least we can deduce from this is that Jesus, if we were to paraphrase, he's really looking for us to be very different, let alone not cancel anybody. But why not? Why not rage? Why not rage against the machine? Why shouldn't we participate in a culture of outrage? And why shouldn't we expressing, be expressing that outrage towards oppressors in the same way our culture is expressing outrage? Why should we, why should we be different? Why, Jesus? Well, in these verses, Jesus is giving us his gospel, which literally means good news. And the gospel of Jesus is a completely different story with a completely different trajectory. Ancient cultures look outward to family and society to tell them who they are. Modern cultures look inward. And we say we look inside of ourselves to figure out who we are. But Jesus says that Christians look upward. We look to Jesus to define who we are. We look to him. We look to the story of God and what he's doing. We allow God to tell us who we are. And the gospel of Jesus Christ says this. The Christian identity is not something we achieve. It's something we receive. We are free because Christ has set us free. And we look to the cross and we see a God who was crushed and in the cross, we see Jesus who says, I loved you so much that I was willing to die for you. And he says, you are now free from trying to retaliate and withhold forgiveness from others because I canceled the ultimate problem of sin. And Jesus says, and now you are free because I make you free. And because of this, you are a son, you are a daughter of the king. You see... Humans were designed to match the identity of God, not ancient identities, not modern identities. We were designed to match the identity of God. We were designed to be makers of the world, 
and it all went God, it all went wrong, but God kept on pursuing. He kept on all the way to the point that he laid down his life for us, for you and for me. And what we see is that Jesus is trying to detach us. He's trying to detach us from the identities of our culture and connect our identity to him and his kingdom. Because our identity, it isn't rooted in scarcity, something that we have to establish on our own. Our identity is rooted in the confidence that we have been shown grace and kindness and forgiveness, and we are now connected to a king of a kingdom that's more powerful than anything that we're experiencing right now. So much powerful that Jesus comes on the scene and he says, you don't have to fight the same way because I'm the one who's actually in charge. I think Michelle Obama says it best. When, like when we're thinking about the kingdom of God, Michelle Obama said it best, not better than uh, the Bible, but like good for this illustration. And that is, remember when she said this? She goes, when they go low, we go high. I love that. When they go low, we go high. Apply this to what Jesus is saying. When they go low, we go high. When they tear down, we build up. When they hold grudges and they hate each other and they tweet the worst things ever, we show forgiveness. We actually show grace. When they believe that they're all alone in the world and they're the only ones that can make a difference and bring justice into the world and achieve justice for all, we choose to pause and we choose to look to God to bring his ultimate justice, his true justice. A justice that says one day God will come back and fully establish his kingdom and he will right every wrong. He will dry every tear. There will be no more pain. He will, do, he will do things that will change everything and he will undo what is wrong about the world and what has been done to us. Now some of you might say, wait a second, now you're bringing up justice. Wasn't well, pursuing justice important to God too? I would say emphatically yes. Yes, justice is important to God. And the justice around individuality can be an important issue. It is. But Jesus is also making it abundantly clear that when we don't see justice happening in our world, when justice isn't happening in the way that you, that you individually think it should happen, and when justice isn't happening in the time frame I think that it should happen, we don't give up. We don't take matters into our own hands. But yet we still, we still pursue justice for all. But he's kind of trying to give us this confidence that he's got it under control. That one day everything will be resolved. Justice is coming. And one day, maybe not in our lifetime, but one day God will bring his full and complete justice into the world and make everything new. And all will be made right. So how do we live in the tension because I think this is the issue. I think a lot of people are trying to, people have caught themselves caught up in cancel culture because they're trying to pursue justice on some level. Um, and uh, how do we do it in a way that makes sense? Um, well, again, we looked at Jesus as our example. Um, notice in the life of Jesus, 
take time. If you read the scriptures, you read, read the stories about Jesus. He did a number of things around justice, but I want to mention a few things about Jesus' way of justice. Number one, he began with his identity rooted in the kingdom. And we just discussed this. I'm not going to just repeat all the same points. But his identity was rooted in the kingdom, that the kingdom is coming and will one day fix everything, that we can go, we can go high when people go low. We don't have to fight dirty anymore. Number two, Jesus held both justice and forgiveness in tension, not one or the other. Um, some people are all justice. Have you ever been around people that are all justice? Yeah, me too. Have you ever been around people who are all forgiveness and there's like no sense of justice at all? Yeah, me too. What we get from Jesus is both and, not either or. This is a kind of God that says let, that we pursue justice, we chase down justice, but at the same time, we offer forgiveness to people who need forgiveness. And forgiveness often means forgiving and treating our oppressors differently. He does both at the same time. And then the third thing is Jesus challenged bad ideas, but he never canceled bad people. That one hurts my feelings a little bit because it's so easy to get into our tribalism where we just go after a person. But Jesus is always after the idea behind the idea, behind the person. And if you study Jesus' way of justice, we're, we, it's obvious. It's obvious. You don't have to read very far that Jesus wants his followers to care about the poor, the widow, the orphan, the immigrant, the single mother, the people who are generally marginalized in our society. If you don't see that, you need to reread it. He wants us to care about those things. And he wants us to offer grace and forgiveness to those around us at the same time. It's not an either or, it's a both and. But get this, it also means that we're free we don't have to express our outrage towards another person every time something doesn't go our way politically or socially. It means that we don't have to participate. We are free from having to participate in personal attacks on our enemies or on celebrities or politicians. It means we don't have to retaliate against our enemies, whether our enemies are societal or actually real enemies that we have in our real life. Because, because God has given us a new identity, a new purpose, and we trust that his kingdom is doing something bigger than we can understand, which makes us representatives of his future kingdom with a new confidence that isn't rooted in our own little tribal groups, but it's rooted in the king and his love for us. It's rooted in the promise that God is going to make the earth new again and bring liberty and justice for all. So as you go from here, may you, may you see yourselves not as just a part of whatever little group you're a part of, but may you see yourselves and your identity as one of the king. You are official ambassadors and representatives of King Jesus, ambassadors that don't come canceling people, but ambassadors of love and grace. And may you see yourself through your new identity in the way that God sees you.
Why don't we all stand? Let's, um, let's pray, and then we'll invite some people to respond uh, to what we're doing, and we're going to sing. So um, let's just pause. God, we, we invite your presence to be with us this morning again, and we ask that you would speak to us right now.